0: Hello there, I'm Gregory Paulini, founder of Gregory Paulini Design and secretary for the board of the Cabinet Makers Association. I'd like to welcome you to episode five of Pro Cabinet Maker, a monthly podcast produced by the CMA. Each month, we're going to chat with some outstanding industry professionals about the issues and challenges impacting their businesses, as well as success stories to inspire us. My guest today is Doug Tatum, chairman of Newport LLC, a national partnership of CEOs and senior executives who advise emerging middle market companies and assist private equity firms as they invest and grow in portfolio companies. Tatum's book, No Man's Land, Where Growing Companies Fail, has won four National Best Business Book Awards and has been translated in several languages. And his insights about the economy and business have been cited in hundreds of media outlets. He recently presented the closing keynote address for the CMA's 25th anniversary conference in Nashville. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So welcome to the podcast, Doug. Uh, Thanks for having me, Greg. Looking forward to the discussion. So incredible presentation at the 25th anniversary conference. And I've compiled a a potpourri of questions or comments. Uh, Let's call them fire starters. They're in no particular order inspired from your book and your presentation and a bit of my own life experience. So first thing I want to kind of jump on is um, business is business. So that's what I'm going to kind of start with. So on my end, I work with some local colleges. I give tours and seminars. I often get asked by aspiring woodworkers, how do you make it in the woodworking business? And I usually respond with, you know, asking that same question, but without the woodworking in it, because business is business. If we don't show black ink, I mean, this is a very, very expensive hobby. So your thoughts here, is this solid advice or is woodworking fundamentally different than other businesses?
1: Well, you know, as as I mentioned in in the speech, that the biggest strategic issue that a craftsman has is whether they're going to remain small. I call them small giants. After a book from a friend of mine, Bo Burlingham, where the business is built around their personal abilities, and value propositions. If you're going to grow the business beyond the individual entrepreneur, then as I mentioned the navigation rule, you have to get that business good at what you're good at. Or you can't scale it, right? So you have to go from third grade soccer, playing positions, and whatever you're uniquely good at, positioning your craft in a marketplace, has to become something the business can do without you, or you can't scale. Now, the, the the interesting thing is, not scaling is not failure, right? I mean, you don't want to grow yourself out of business. So, as as we talk in the speech, there are certain metrics you're going to have to deal with to do that. So, if you know, if I was going to ask a student that, I would answer it that way. I would say, you know, if you find unique product sets around unique customer sets, your customers will scale you. And you might have to scale with it, right? So uh, uh, you look, let's say, and I didn't use this obviously in the speech, but you know, make up a couple customers. customer sets. Let's say you had a large retailer and you created some very unique things in their stores because you're a craftsman. And now that retailer is going to go to a thousand stores or hundreds of stores. You're not going to be able to do that by yourself. So you're going to have to transform that creativity into a production environment to satisfy that customer. That's a business, you know, and I think you, you kind of hinted at it. It's a big market. It's serviced by many, many craftsmen. And there are a number of those craftsmen who are going to scale, but that's going to be a context of the decisions they make along with
0: the customers that they pick and serve. So woodworkers and woodworking in general, we're, we're not unicorns. <laughs>
1: yeah. You, you and I talked before this, and you said business is business. It's a very good statement. And there's a value proposition. Part of that is a creative. I mean, what's the difference between that and a fashion business? Right? There's fashion businesses out there. Now, the the product cycle in the fashion business is a lot shorter than woodworking. But can you transfer your creative ideas into products that have a market size, then you have a scalable business? If not, you're doing custom things. Right. Okay? And that's okay. But it's two different
0: forms in the same market. Right. So bigger is not always better. It's really more about, you know, what do we want to be when we grow up?
1: Yeah. And I got to tell you, you don't grow for growth's sake. You know, when they introduced me in, into the speech, they mentioned that I started a business and grew up to a couple hundred million dollars. And or that was implied about sizing. You know, I had 30 offices, 1,400, 1,500 employees at the firm. I do that, you know, that gets your attention that I understand what it is to scale. But we make a real big mistake putting anybody on the stage, and that's what they want to talk about, because you can be very, very successful staying at human scale, like I talked about, small, and work on profitability, not saving, right? I think that's the switch. I have to know that I'm going to make more money, significantly more money when I grow, or why they'll grow, right? Growth for growth's sake. So don't get suckered into that. I got to build a huge
0: farm or a huge company to be successful. That's stupid. That kind of hit on something that I was kind of wondering here at some point is just kind of like what's inherently wrong with growth for growth's sake. In my particular case, I've got some real reasons I think are good reasons to grow. And I know that, uh, you spoke about before you make a decision to grow, to know why you want to grow your business. And that got me thinking quite a bit. So like in my case, my whys for growing the business are one, I kind of look at our business as it's passive retirement income for me. I mean, in, in the perfect world, I'm growing my business to be able to run without me and outlive me and still be able to function when I decide I don't want to work anymore. So basically pulling dividends off of a, a stock, something I've invested in, and it's paying money back to me. So that's that's one of the things. One of my other whys is um, providing opportunities for my employees to uh, better their lives. I mean, if I just hire employees and I have them doing the exact same thing, I could have the smartest, best people in the world. I'm going to burn them out if I don't give them opportunity to grow. So that's another reason I have for growing our business. And- you know i was kind of curious of your thoughts on my reasons if you thought those were good reasons well absolutely
1: so let's look at it in very pragmatic terms if you're going to spend your career in the business if the business is completely uh, revolved around you as your individual skills and efforts then the bottom line is that the business itself has very little value the value is literally what you have earned from your efforts leveraged by whoever you have around. Now, the second thing is, okay, if I've got a business and I can attract very talented people and I can work my way out of the where the business makes enough money to pay me without my personal efforts, then effectively you set up the opportunity to transfer the ownership of that business to your employees. It might not be, as you pointed out, a huge sale because of the value of it in terms of its size. But what it does, it creates an income stream after the fact, and you have literally transferred your skills to other folks in the business. If you get into a financial scale business where you're gonna go up and you're gonna have, you know, 100 plus employees, you're gonna have tens of millions of revenues, that's a whole different ballgame. That has a different value as a business. But what's going to define that are different reasons. So in your case, absolutely makes all the sense in the world that if i can attract craftsmen teach them how to run a business then i'm going to have something that has some value to me financially when i don't want to be one okay that doesn't lower the opinion i have of a craftsman out here and say you know what i love what i do with my hands and i really don't you know other than what i need to do i'm going to stay small and the business built around me And at the same time, they don't have that reason that you're talking about. They might not have that inclination. You know, some of the best surgeons in the world aren't interested in doing anything but surgery, you know. So now you go to what are some other good reasons to grow? I think if you end up getting hooked onto the right type of client or customer, you would call them, they might require that you grow with them, but that's a different kind of business then you might end up in a pseudo manufacturing kind of environment. That's another good reason to grow is if you've got a customer or a set of customers that need you to grow and you're making money on them, why wouldn't you do that? Right? That has a different reason for that. But to sit down and judge yourself strictly by your growth rate or the size of your revenues is really dumb. What you've done is sit down and said, okay, I've got to get a business with some talented folks that are interested in this business that make enough money at it and that the business is large enough effectively to create a value proposition above my doing the work in it so that I can get paid later on. That's a really good, solid
0: business financial reason for growing. Oh, well, absolutely. Glad to hear your thoughts on it because it just kind of confirms that I'm, I'm not half as crazy as as my wife thinks I am. So no comment. Are there there other, um, I mean, the gist I get is there's other good reasons to grow too. And some of these good reasons are just going to present themselves organically. You know, we find a niche market and it just kind of happens. One of the things that I've heard in the past is um, like, I, I had a business mentor that basically said, Greg, you know, you want to make sure you grow like an oak tree, not like a weed. That way you can weather the storms that come through. And I could see like in a niche market where maybe you're one of the few players in this market, you have this opportunity for, you know, meteoric growth. Is there such a thing as growth that's too fast? Or is there a reason that fast growth can be bad or okay? Such as you know, hey, if you've got all your systems in place, then, you know, meteoric growth is great. But I'm just kind of wondering, is there a sweet spot there or is there warning signs we should look out for it? You know, a very rapid one-time or initial growth is
1: usually preceded by a lot of problems statistically. If you want to predict Dr. Gary Kuckel, it's some very interesting research on the database that I showed everybody during the speech that indicates that the best predictor of future growth is consistent growth, okay? And that's a little bit in line with the notion of growing a tree over a longer period of time. It's gonna grow a little slower than a than a weed would. Now, I will tell you that businesses tend to, you use the agricultural metaphor, and they tend to be a little bit more like bamboo. Like my, my understanding is bamboo takes, you know, five, six years to get three or four feet, and then the next five or six year it gets to 12 feet. And what happens is it's that platform that scales. And that's a a really good illustration of the niche market. Now, as I mentioned at the speech too, there's speed limits on the cash flow side. Very few business people, in fact, we just put together an executive education program at FSU called Profit Sense, so that you can understand how to read financials because profits are not the same thing as cash flow. I can show you that a rapidly growing business could make a lot of money I love profits and be completely, utterly out of cash. And as you well know, as a business person, you know what what I'm talking about, right? You're going to pay your employees every two weeks. You're not getting paid every two weeks by your product. There's a, a supply chain that you might have to invest in before you deliver the actual product. And so the profits get tied up in your inventory or in your receivables faster than they flip into cash. Then you have a speed limit. So the answer is, you know, I've been a venture capitalist, I run a small fund, I've been on the boards of them. We love to see growth like this, but if it's profitable and we understand the cash characteristics of it, or we can plug those holes financially with capital, then go for it. But you've got to have the right management, the right processes, you're away from third grade soccer, everybody's playing positions, and you know in advance of where you're going what it looks like. You know, you've tested your business decisions in financial terms and you can't do cash flow before you allow that to happen, that makes sense.
0: Gotcha. So the feeling I'm getting there is that rapid growth or meteoric growth is not necessarily a bad thing, but the success of it is really going to be more dependent upon the experience of the folks that are steering the ship and the things that they've encountered, the things they knew to look out for, which a guy like me... I'm not going to see those rocks in the water. I'm not even going to know what the lighthouse means. I'm going to crash. I'm going to burn. Well,
1: and and let me say this. There has to be a rational reason for why it's growing that fast. I think statistically that the number of the Inc. 5,000 companies that show up the next year significantly reduced because a one or two year of rapid growth can mean that let's say you picked one big customer, they ate your bandwidth, you expanded to keep up with them. And no other big customers showed up wanting the same thing. You're screwed, right? It wasn't a marketplace. It was one customer and they have a problem. And now you have a problem. So, you know, I think that I am more than willing to support the, the idea your entrepreneurs that were in the audience can grow a launch business, but they're going to have to have some other people around them that understand that to get there. As I talked about, you know, the ticket to the inner circle has got to be performance, not loyalty. And that is a big transition culturally when you go from human scale to financial
0: scale. Gotcha. And uh, there's so many things as we talk. um, I got so many ideas here. I want to make sure I don't forget to kind of tap into them again here. So we mentioned about risk a little bit here and financial literacy. I'm kind of taking notes as we talk. And also just, you know, the money it costs to to grow. So, I mean, I'm going to jump around a little bit here. I want to go to financial literacy and just basic business literacy just for a minute. Because there's so many folks that struggle with the basics of just financial literacy, especially within a business. I meet folks to this day that they don't really understand the difference between margin and markup. Or price versus cost. And even less of them really have any idea that pricing cost have nothing to do with one another other than price hopefully is is higher than cost. So I remember you mentioning something, uh, a, a program that you're coming out with or you're developing that could help folks with financial literacy.
1: Yeah, as I mentioned in my introduction, I'm a faculty member at Florida State University School of Entrepreneurship, the only uh, separate school of entrepreneurship in the United States of a major research university. And we've built a thing called ProfitSense for that reason, because you're exactly like Greg. I'm a CPA by background, obviously. In my old firm, we were consulting CFOs for many, many, many emerging growth companies around the country. And what you find is that you have a number, and I could see particularly in in this type of environment with these craftsmen, you you have a variety of of products running through the process at the same time. And what you don't realize is that one product eats a lot more bandwidth than another product beyond just labor, okay? So, you know, you've got your costs, your labor, but what you don't understand is there's, there's things called fixed costs and variable costs. As I explained in that slide, when you start growing, you hit a thing called step-pitch cost. Greg, I'm guaranteed you've dealt with it, where you go, I gotta add more people in the scenery and space ahead of what this revenue I'm thinking is gonna have, or I can't ever get to it. That means I gotta take that risk of the step hitch cost because it doesn't go up variably well with revenue. It goes up all of a sudden. The good thing about it's it fixed, which means that if you get that revenue, it becomes less and less a percentage of your cost as you grow, that's where your profit comes from. But if you get stuck in there, you find yourself killing yourself and not making any money because you don't understand how the costs change as you grow. And having that financial literacy, understanding fixed variable costs profits versus cash, those kind of things, back to your comment earlier before we started this, it's a business. And so you've got to understand how, I'm sure there are some pilots in the audience, God help you. If you don't have any instruments to look at, right. <laughs> and that's what financial information is. You know, how are you flying above the ground? Where are you pointed? What's your speed? How close are you to the angle of attack, you know, and going into a spin.
0: That's what financial information is. And so you got to take some time to get educated. So again, with these things that I kind of made notes about as you're talking here, such great directions here. um, You know, you mentioned risks and, you know, one of the things that you talked about was I just kind of related it back to basic diversification like you would with any kind of investment. But another risk is, you know, having, I forgot exactly what you call it, but basically a team man business where the business is dependent Upon the owner or founder, versus a business that can operate without the founder, and I guess if we want to grow and we've got good reasons to grow, what are some of the steps that we can do or some of the biggest things that you see as hurdles that a founder needs to overcome basically in order to fire themselves and and to grow their business and minimize that key person risk so as I talked about the, the at the your stage, the most difficult
1: emotional transition, if you go to scale, right, is that everybody has an inner circle. And that inner circle is there because of a ticket called loyalty. That inner circle has to change to performance. And unfortunately, we tend to give titles as a form of compensation. So if you're going to scale, a financial scale, uh, you're going to have to change fees in that inner circle. And that's a really emotional place. Like I said in the speech, how do you tell somebody you couldn't be where you are today without them, but you can't go anywhere anymore with them? That's a tough conversation to have. And you have to lower the risk of decisions. So let's say, and, you know, it'd be arrogant on my part to pick positions within your industry. But let's say that the lower the risk of the business going forward, you need to be bringing people into your inner circle that have been there, done that on somebody else's neck because that speeds up the decisions and lowers the risk. Everything about adding value in a business is about lowering, risk, right? Fundamentally, if the business is completely built around you personally, then that's the number one risk in the business. It has very little value, but it can generate a lot of income while you're there. Okay. Small giant. You're not going to get a value for a business at scale unless somebody comes in and says, this business's value proposition, which we talked about in speaking, is clearly identified. We clearly know why this business wins in this segment of the market and how big the market is and why they continue to win. When you identify that and organize around that, you have a business you can go to financial scale. You're not going to do that without adding people around you That have been there, done that.
0: And that's the change in the ticket of loyalty to performance that I talked about. Gotcha. I totally understand what you're saying there. And I totally have been and continue to be in that situation. Um, I've had folks that have been with me for a long time. And basically, since my decision to just kind of grow from a one-man shop, folks that have been with me for a while, and those are folks I still want on the bus, but they need to be on different seats on the bus now, and it it's painful to do those things. So I, Very I can painful. relate for sure. One of the other notes that I had here really was, you know, as we grow, we need to invest and, you know, you kind of let the dirty secret out of the bag there that growth costs money. So you, you mentioned here a second ago, we need to surround ourselves by, um, I'm just going to kind of, you know, summarize it. I, I need to surround myself with people that are smarter than I am. So I definitely have to invest in people that way, or I need to create positions where those people can grow within my organization. But on a much lower schedule, there is a sentiment out there with a lot of woodworking shops that, you know, hey, if we're not standing at the bench with a hand plane, making wood shavings in this very romantic setting that we're kind of selling out or so. What are your thoughts on investing in people versus investing in equipment, the whole craftsman versus machine kind of thing? If you had any thoughts on that.
1: Well, you know, the schedule that I put in the speech that showed the capital market's equivalent of a minimum wage employee is going to change the world, right? In other words, you can go out and borrow $300,000, the equivalent of hiring for the same cash flow as hiring a minimum wage employee. I'm using $20 as a minimum wage to be politically correct. So the, the bottom line is that I think that one of the things, whether it's doing it now or will happen, there's going to be processes that are going to be mechanized and they're going to be a lot cheaper to do it with equipment than it is. Before. I think that's a really good thing for your industry because it's just like the fashion industry. It's to conceive of something, to design a process that delivers something that's excellent doesn't require you do it with your own hands all the time. And that's the end result of the creative process. I don't know how much money is being driven into the R&D in this particular industry, but it's happening in every other industry
0: with labor's involved. Are there other investments that might be less tangible, but equally, or even more important for us, um, like uh, improving our cash on hand or investing in training personal growth or company culture that are going to be critical with that company growth? I think what you will find, if you happen to be, as we talked earlier, in
1: a position where you can scale the business, you're going to have to over hire in a couple of positions that you're uncomfortable with, right? You're going to have to find somebody that you feel comfortable because of the experience. You can let go of a piece of the business. Completely, because they know more about it than you are. Not that they're smarter than you are. They know more about it. And the end result is that is an investment that will pay off. If you're busy, you hire kind of below you and somebody that will do what you tell them to do. As opposed to say, all right, the whole logistics of my supply chain and the delivery of my product, you've run at scale. You now own that for this business. Okay. You know the contract. You know the right vendors. You know the processes. You know the software that needs to be brought in to control this going on. Uh, another example might be you're blowing it going, but you don't know really what your costs are. You think you know, but you're not doing the time capture correct. Maybe you end up bringing a financial person in please implemented kind of time capturing and what I would call job costing in another environment that you need in your environment to really know if your margin. And what you're going to find out is that you're making real money on some products and some products you're not, and you have to change your pricing. Okay. You, you know, why build up fixed capacity and costs and that kind of risk if you don't get a good return
0: on it? So, you know, those are a couple of examples. Gotcha. Between the webinar, your, your presentation at the conference, uh, this podcast, I've learned so much from you and I, I could talk to you for hours here but I think it's probably better to kind of phase out with the quality rather than just quantity of information, things that we can retain. Again, I, I wanna really thank you for joining us and for everything that you've done with the CMA. Well, I appreciate it and you're a good interviewer, so it makes me bite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Pro Cabinet Maker. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact the woodworking industry And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the Cabinet Makers Association, be sure to visit us online at cabinetmakers.org. See you next time.